0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. On this week's uh, Battle Rhythm, we have Vanessa Kimball, professor at Laval University. She is recovering from much travel across much of Europe for a uh, um, project with uh, related to the CDSN Minds effort to better understand how NATO center, centers of excellence work, because we want to provide some guidance to the new center of excellence on climate security. That's we that is based in Montreal. It started its work this fall. So, Anessa, what are the big lessons you learned from your gallivanting across Europe besides that visas are challenging?
1: Aside from, yes, that observation about EU visas. So the project took me across five different centers of excellence that were in five different NATO partners. Together, I was able to interview representatives and folks from uh, more than a dozen. In fact, there was 14 NATO partners who were affiliated with these five centers. And so that was just an interesting exercise in itself to kind of uh, have that level of variety of opinions. But because the focus was really on Central and Eastern Europe, a majority of that sample, so two-thirds of that sample, were folks that were from uh, about six or seven partner countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And so I think that provided also an interesting viewpoint of burden sharing in the alliance as they relate to the topics of specialization of centers of excellence. And so for me as a Brendan Sharing scholar, that was fascinating because one of the concepts behind the center of excellence is that it's going to be a way for Canada to contribute its expertise to transforming the Alliance concerning these various aspects around which the centers are accredited, which are lessons learned, education and training, Uh, uh, concept development and experimentation and the fourth which is doctrine development and standards and so around those aspects Canada will be co-leading how our NATO partners and allies think about how the military responds to and is responsible for and can mitigate and adapt to aspects of climate change and so I think in that aspect it is a very interesting project for the future of Canada's participation in NATO and what it's contributing to NATO.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you're doing this research. I'm glad that you have managed to get back into the country. I will learn lessons from you about being away since I am to be away in Germany for three months this year and next year for, or yeah, next year and the year after, I should say. And
1: congratulations on that because you, you won a, uh, you have you're going to be under grant and so you're going to be researching uh, on the half of somebody else who's paying you to come there to do the research so why don't you tell me a little bit about the research that you're going to be doing if you don't mind.
0: Sure technically the Humboldt Award is just an award for past performance so it is treated as an award not a postdoc or a grant I say that so that way in case anybody from uh, the Canadian Revenue Agency is listening to our podcast but it's going to put me at the Hurdy School which is in Berlin and they are similar In nature to nipsia which is that they're an international affairs program mostly training the next generation of policymakers in germany and beyond it's a fairly international program uh and so i had the choice of whether to spend six consecutive months there or to split it up and so i'm splitting it up and you know it'll help facilitate my larger project which is wandering around the world asking defense agencies what they think their job is because we are trained and taught to think that defense agencies are supposed to oversee militaries, but more than one of them think that their job is to protect the military from the civilians, and that is very very different. In Canada, the expectation is not to, is not to oversee the military, but to support the military, which is still different from what our you know conventional under, scholarly understandings of what how governments operate. And so I'm working with Philigasse and Orzekli, exactly looking at a bunch of different countries, and so being positioned in Europe for six months between 2024 and 2025 will help me not only get the German case, but also I'll use that as a base of operations to go to Scandinavia, maybe go to the Netherlands and a few other countries so we can accumulate knowledge about those cases. Uh, so we can produce another, another big book. This is the idea. Wonderful. Wonderful. Very excited about it. And it, it's a pretty cool, cool gig, uh, I got to say.
1: Fortunately for your students, that means that you will be away, though, for a couple chunks of time. So you will be not teaching those classes over at Nipsia, So, Well,
0: I'm, on, I'm still on sabbatical this year, so I was never going to be teaching those classes this winter. And then the following winter, I'll, I'll just teach more classes in the fall. Okay. Next so year, get I will. More
1: of Steve at, at the election season, which is going to be wonderful.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, that that's a really good pitch, actually, because... In a couple of days, when this podcast drops on Wednesday, the next day will be the year ahead event we have in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And one of our panels is on the 2024 election. What does it mean for Canada? Not the outcome, but the process itself that you're going to have Donald Trump sort of competing with a bunch of other Republicans to prove that they're the, the nastiest, most unilateral isolationist and yes, white supremacist. And that will have implications for Canada in terms of inciting violence It's certainly inside violence in the united states and what happens in the united states often spills over to canada so that's one of our panels for the year ahead which is again december 7th they're still t- available and we'll also be pitching that again at the end of the podcast because our interview is with lama rod who is a moderator for a different panel uh, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast
1: so the schedule and it looks fascinating and i'm jealous that i cannot be there but I'm sure that it's going to be extremely interesting looking at some of the names of the individuals that were on the papers and knowing some of their viewpoints. I can guarantee that uh, folks that tune in will definitely be hearing some folks uh, argue a little bit,
0: at least. Oh, it's definitely going to be a good conference. We got people who are very open and don't entirely agree with each other. And the premise of this year-end conference every year is to prepare people for the next year, and so... I think we did a pretty good job of anticipating the challenge this year because we have to start the planning for this you know, early in 2023 to to guess what's going to happen in 2024. But I think we hit a target in some ways too well. Anyway, what we wanted to do today was talk about a few things that are in the news. One thing that dominated the snarky blue sky space, I don't know how much it dominated Twitter since I'm not really on Twitter as much as I used to be, it is the death of Henry Kissinger. We are international relations scholars. He... Used to be an international relations scholar who then became a policymaker. And so we have strong opinions about him. You know, the maybe it's the bubble I, I exist in, but I just saw endless waves of criticism of Henry Kissinger. There was not too much in the way of lauding him. And there was a lot of fun people had in dissecting Joe Biden's statement, which was the equivalent of a Southerner saying, Bless your heart, which is not a very friendly thing, actually, for them to say. And so his statement was, Yeah, we, I've been disagreeing with him my entire career, was his basic statement. They said it in a very polite way, as opposed to sucking up to him. I, I to preview, I, I think the American foreign policy establishment for a long time has given Kissinger way too much credit. So to see this correction after his death, after a long anticipation of his death, was much deserved. When you saw the died, what were your reactions, Vanessa?
1: Well, I mean, I think my my reaction, I mean, I, I, was, I was surprised. I, mean, I guess we, again, obviously the clock is ticking. We know that it's coming. The reactions, from my view, were mostly, you know, folks trying to, I wouldn't say even a measured way, but uh, trying to set the record right, we'll say. Mm-hmm. I think that's how I felt when I read most of these things, is that it's been a bit of Telling the narrative for what the narrative really was and is instead of these kind of when you have other people that are spinning the reality and all of that. And I think it also, it harkens very much to other names of folks in our field that also are a bit in the same situation where they've become so linked to decisions or actors in our government and like that that they become a little bit... Um, indistinguishable from certain narratives or certain defenses of what was done and so i think that that's interesting we'll probably be seeing much more as archives open up and we see more of the things that we probably didn't know because i think that's also pretty clear as well <laughs> that there's probably lots of information or things about him that we will learn in the next uh, other things that maybe are
0: not that favorable we already have that though. I mean, the National Security Archives in D.C. has a lot of documents. One of the things that was what Kissinger was pathological about was recording everything. And they ended up getting all those recordings of phone calls and all the rest. And so there's a well established record of him saying one thing and doing another. Like he often claimed that he was the moderating force on on Nixon, but it turns out in a lot of ways he was the one who was encouraging Nixon to be worse. One of the things that used to be an accusation, but I think has been really substantiated, is one of the worst things that he did, which was, people didn't know it. In 1968, uh, Lyndon Johnson was trying to negotiate an end to the Vietnam War. He had changed his mind about the war quite dramatically. He pulled out of running for office, uh, running for re-election to so the aftermath of the Tet Offensive. He realized that that things were broken. And so he tried to stop the war, and he had negotiations. And one of the things that Kissinger did was he subverted the, the negotiations. He he was partly an advisor the Nixon, to the Johnson administration, but he was also at the same time he was sucking up to the Rockefeller campaign and sucking up to the Nixon campaign. And so he ultimately gave in information to the Nixon campaign, and then Nixon and his people then used that information to cause the South Vietnamese government to retrench, thinking they would get a better deal under the Nixon administration. So Henry, Henry Kissinger, by himself, was personally responsible for prolonging the,
1: the war. I mean, I think it goes very much hand in hand with the the type of character and persona that is obsessed with a status-based or a prestige-based foreign policy that you can manage everything through power and that you can manipulate information to create influence. And that at the end of the day, that move particularly showed that he was really cared about his own personal position And what was going to happen in the near term because of uncertainty around the elections. And so, yeah, I mean,
0: well, and that's exactly it. So people call him a realist because his foreign policy advocacy usually had no concern about morality. But really, he was a bad realist, which was his his policies were mostly aimed at his own personal power and not the, the national interest that. You know, people, when they laud him, talk about China and about how, how, you know, opening up up to China and how he did a great job of pursuing the American national interest, even at the expense of morality, such as supporting dictators. But if you take a closer look at it, it shows most of the foreign policies he advocated were bad for the United States. The United States, because of Henry Kissinger, ended up spending five more years in Vietnam, that more than the Americans died in the after the 1968 peace negotiations than before. For what? For nothing. We didn't get anything more out of it. And and that also led to the bombing of Cambodia and the, and the invasion of Cambodia, which also, in the end, was not good for American foreign policy, because we ended up having communists run Cambodia, and a very, very rabid form of it. And so I don't think the Khmer Rouge were ever much of an ally in the United States. And indeed, Vietnam ended up, once it won the war, ended up being a better force for stability in the region by overthrowing the Khmer Rouge and also defeating the Chinese invasion. So, you know, it's even that thing, you know, had so much spillover. Uh, my sister was in Cambodia the past couple of weeks on, on a tourist visit, and and you know, they visited the killing. She and her boyfriend visited the killing fields. The stuff has, you know, legacies. You know, 50 years later, and they they, they, they the blood was very much on on Nick Kissinger's hands. One thing I didn't realize or didn't appreciate, and I knew about uh, the support for the overthrow of Allende in Chile. Uh, I knew of sport for other dictators, but I had studied the international relations of, of uh, the situation of Bangladesh, and I wasn't really quite aware. I hadn't read Gary Bass's book, *The Blood Telegram*, that identifies how much Nixon and, and Kissinger were cheering on the Pakistan government as they were engaged in genocide against the Bengalis. That hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people died in that. It sent you know over five million refugees. Into India, and that caused India to in, in, in intervene in that war. And what was that war about? It was that the majority of the people voted for a new government. The majority of people happened to be in Bengali. That what was East Pakistan, East Pakistan at the time. And the folks in West Pakistan didn't want to lose power. And because Nixon and kister hated India, hated Indira Gandhi. That's not about the American nationalists. it's about their personal animus. And they found the leadership of Pakistan would be more friendly to them. They supported them in in their campaign, which was bad for the American national interest as bad for Pakistan. Well,
1: I I would argue that it's also important to point out that both Nixon and and Kissinger held very patriarchal views of women. And so Indira Gandhi was a woman. And so basically, there was also a logic of trying to punish her uh, in various ways through these policies by making things difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's over term. They're racist, and they were misogynist. Of course. It so goes these, the these, in
1: hand. I mean, there's no logic or rationality behind really those types of, you know, particularly uh, Indira Gandhi, obviously, is a, is a leader whose popularity was, uh, we'll say, uh, not exactly shared by everyone. Well, and her own
0: authoritarian tendencies as well, so.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: The one thing you can say about Kissinger was he was successful pursuing his own interest. He didn't pursue the national interest; he pursued his own interest, and so he had staying power. The reason why we kept on seeing, you know, the cartoon of death at the at the at the machine in the arcade trying to pick dead people out, and they were always like, "Is Kissinger in this machine?" And it's like, why? What, what's going on? Why there was so much resentment? In part, was he was still seen by re- numerous presidents and numerous foreign governments as being smart. Uh, Insightful and an expert on foreign policy without anybody, you know, without a lot of those people questioning that. There had been books written from the 1980s onwards documenting how little he had gained and how much he had cost the United States. And not only that, but how much blood was on his hands. And he was still being hugged by presidents left and right. He showed up at the Trump administration, he showed up in the Obama administration, he showed up for the Bushes, he showed up for Clinton, that they were all valuing this guy who was wildly overrated for his entire career. And one of the things that separates Joe Biden from all these other folks is he never had any time for this. Uh, There was a story coming out that came out of his first meeting with him when he was a junior senator on the Foreign Relations Committee, and Kissinger was briefing them uh, when he was still National Security Advisor Secretary of State. And Biden was late, comes in, and Kissinger sort of scoffs at him for being, you know, I thought we weren't having any staffers here. And and Biden informed that he was a senator. And I think that set the tone for their relationship ever, ever since then. And so you don't see the same kind of embracing of, of, of Kissinger about Biden, but it speaks. Uh, there was a great interview in the past week or so by Isaac Chotner, who no one should ever be interviewed by him because he's there. sort of like, always makes you look foolish. And so Richard Haas, who used to be the head of the Council of Foreign Relations, spoke with Chotner about Kissinger. And Chotner was trying to figure out, why have you guys stuck by this guy? And he, in the course of the interview, makes Richard Haas look like a fool because he's asking, well, what about these things? And and, and the guy's like, oh, I don't really know enough about it. I'm like, well, you're the head of the Council of Foreign Relations. You're supposed to know a lot about the international relations around the world. If you don't know what happened in Bangladesh. You don't know what happened in, in Chile. You know, and so the worst the worst thing that, that Haas would say about Kissinger was that so he found some of the things he did questionable. And so I do think that this moment in time allows us to think about those folks who are making foreign policy, the community around them. I don't tend to believe in the blob, the, that there's a single community of people out there who all think the same thing. When it comes to Kissinger, it's pretty close to it, that there are a lot of folks in the U.S. foreign policy apparatus and also in other countries who, you know, in in lockstep just worship this guy. And it's been a long time since he had no clothes but that this is something we should be take seriously, that those people who fail us should be held accountable for it and shouldn't be hugged later. So I was at, for instance, a Council of Foreign Relations event. Oh, I forget when, but it must have been around 2009, 2010. And Condoleezza Rice was there. And, and they were just stand all over her because, wow, she was the Secretary of State. She was National Security Advisor. She was like the new Kissinger. and' was like, she was President when the United States made all kinds of mistakes. Her, her hands are all over Iraq, and Iraq was not a policy success in 2008 or 2009, or whatever this meeting was, that uh, Elliot Abrams, who was actually convicted of crimes in the aftermath of the Iran-Contra and then got pardoned, is now somebody who is trotted out by the Council of Foreign Relations all the time. And I feel badly about this because the Council of Foreign Relations gave me the money that allowed me to spend a year in the Pentagon, so I really owe them a lot for changing my career, changing my life. I wouldn't be in Canada without it, I don't think. And I wouldn't be asking the questions I am today without that experience. So I really appreciate that experience. But as an institution, they keep on valorizing People who have done real harm to the American national interest and real harm to people elsewhere. And I'm not sure that's a habit that they're going to get out of any time too soon. Sorry, I had to get that random off my chest. That nice view on the battle
1: rhythm.
0: Yes. Uh, so the interesting thing is Canada is actually stepping out of uh, its traditional behavior because it is quickly buying a plane that the P-8 is the replacement to the Auroras. The Aurora is an anti-submarine plane that has been used not just for tracking Soviet, it's that old, Soviet submarines and then Russian submarines, but it has also been used for monitoring sanctions. That's what it's currently used for right now is monitoring sanctions off of the shores of North Korea. It was actually used flying over the skies of Iraq and Syria to track various things. That way we can get better information about ISIS which was then ultimately used to target ISIS. So it's a capability that's been used quite extensively. And now those planes are old. And so we're facing the decision to buy new ones. But this is controversial because they didn't have an open competition. They just went with a P8, despite the fact that there was a Quebec firm, Bombardier Desperately trying to get the business. Your thoughts, Vanessa?
1: yeah i mean i think this uh, this speaks a little bit to the continued kind of illness of the procurement system uh and the slowness of doing things that we wait until we're kind of in danger critical situation where we've gotten to a point where we're limit to try to fulfill all of the commitments we've made to our international partners and do what we need to do for national defense and so this is a you know, defense procurement that's been needed for a while because, uh, notably, Canada had made commitments to NATO to be putting those planes into Operation Reassurance, which is kind of a maritime monitoring mission. And Canada has, not and because of its aging in and insufficient fleet, it has not been able to do the to participate late participate in those missions as it was participating before. And so, in some senses. Again, this is Trudeau trying to uh, fulfill a bit some of his electoral promises about what Canada is supposed to be doing. And I think that at the end of the day, it's not a real surprise either that Canada ended up going with, this is consistent with what we know about Canada's behavior. It often goes with the -the off-the-shelf things that it wouldn't have to tweak, things that are already available, that it sees as easy to purchase for something like that, particularly because of interoperability. Um, because these ones would already go in with what already is interoperable with our allies and with the alliance, which is where it would not be. I think it probably even at least half of their missions would probably be collaborative.
0: Well, the striking thing is that they are making a decision. They're making a fast decision. They're making a decision that is not the one that is pandering to Canadian voters. Now, Boeing will say that there's lots of parts that come from Canadian companies Over 200 Canadian companies are involved in this. But those are 200 small companies. It's not as visible or politically active or politically relevant as Bombardier. And so while this was going on, you know, this has been a discussion for quite some time. I was surprised the government, you know, in a run up to an election was actually making what I think is the better choice for the Canadian national interest, which is buying the off the shelf thing that was a proven thing as opposed to Bombardier's proposal, which was, hey, we have planes that fly. We'll jam a lot of stuff on it. It'll work. You know, they're basically promising a plane that didn't exist. And uh, we already have that. We call we already have that in the shipbuilding program. We have ships that didn't never existed, don't exist, and now are widely overpriced and problematic because they were not proven technology. But we were, you know, creating jobs in Halifax and Vancouver.
1: This also goes to show that in the defense procurement testifying that was done in the last several months, that there were several experts also saying that more off the shelf because Canada gets itself in trouble when it tries to do these specialized things. And so you have risks if Canada goes alone and you have risks if Canada goes kind of with partners, as we saw from the F-35. But at the end of the day, when you have this critical need, getting something where we can essentially use it tomorrow and we know that it's going to be rolled in an interoperable is the mission demand uh, more essentially Um, and so i think it's again i think it's the right decision even though uh, the economist in me of course is saying it's not a free market but then the defensive economics market has never been that adam smith market where there's a free hand moving supply and demand and
0: kind of making it fair (laughs) well the thing is we delayed on the F-35 for a decade because there, you know, are criticisms, the, these folks who are in power now made the criticisms 10, to 12 years ago, that the Harbor government hadn't held a, a real competition. And then the F-35 went out and won every competition, not only the competition in Canada, but in Australia and in, a in variety of European countries held real competitions. I think the calculation that the government has made is not only is it important that Boeing is, if they didn't get this order, might close down the production line. Uh, which is an important threat that Boeing was making because they are a competitive enterprise and are seeking to get all these contracts. But that if they had a competition between Boeing's actual plane and the mythical plane that Bombardier was trying to promote, Boeing would win and we'd, we'd get p P8. Well, well, maybe we wouldn't because it would no longer be in production or we'd have to pay Boeing more to restart production. But we'd still get the same plane because it it's fundamentally the right plane for what we need as opposed to a plane that again simply doesn't exist.
1: That it's important to note that the Boeing offer was expiring and so yeah. the pressure of the time and the uncertainty about what the changed price would be also essentially forced the hand. This is this is a very kind of it's a very popular defense contracting way to move actors to making decisions knowing that these things have to pass through sometimes legislatures and national budgets.
0: On the flip now, the side, the-
1: until X and you make your decision. <laughs>
0: Well, on the flip side, Bombardier was playing the same game in reverse, which was, hey, Boeing is good, likely to take this plane out of production. Let's drag out the, con- uh, the the decision-making. I believe the Canadian phrase is rag the puck to keep this thing going so that way by the time Canada makes a decision, it won't be able to make the, the PA decision. It won't be just, just be left with the Bombardier plane. Again, I am just astonished that the Trudeau government actually – Took the decision that was more costly domestically. Uh, they don't always; they do that sometimes, but rarely. And in, in a year before or a year and a half before an election, that's just striking. Uh, and so we just have to note it. And, and we have to note also it's in direct contradiction to the pol- what they were doing when they were in opposition. The Conservatives on the on the flip side, uh, you know, and some other actors have been supporting Bombardier because this was a way to attack the government, even though they were on the other side of this argument. One of the challenges of Canadian procurement is that all the parties use this for domestic political purposes and don't have any vision for what is, what is necessary for Canada, what, particularly in their opposition, when they're in power, then they have to make responsible choices, or at least they are, sometimes are forced to make responsible choices. And so it would be nice if the opposition had better strategies for opposing that weren't usually so counter to what was good for Canadian defense. So. We'll still consider, you know, there's lots lot to criticize the government about their defense policies. Well, I mean, but... of course,
1: and this is because it's all driven by the, the the logic of industrial offsets, which are essentially ways to redistribute potential benefits from these types of investments, right? And so they're kind of, it's like, it's like moving around these fictitious credits. And again, this is also something that has been highly criticized and a lot of other countries have moved away from policies of industrial offsets, because- it's kind of a lazy man's thinking way of thinking about redistribution by basically forcing firms to do it, forcing the government to force firms to do it, we'll say. And so like, for example, in France, they've gone away from these types of challenges in defense procurement, particularly because of the way that the defense industrial sector is not, uh, is not distributed geographically in a way that's equitable. There are ways in which we can think about developing, I would say, defense adjacent industries that might be more or better suited to these types of things. So, for example, instead of trying to think like we're going to open a factory that's going to produce large-end munitions or planes, let's think about maybe a factory that would be producing critical health and protective gear, right? And so now you're doing something that the military is going to use that's going to have a crisis use, that's going to have this, you know, um, and so countries are kind of shifting their thinking a little bit, but this idea of using these these major big procurements as ways to kind of stimulate massive sector, regional growth is, it's not, it's very, it's like a very Canadian centric, I think, rationality that has to do with pair and all of these very Canadian unique federal things that you learn when you come here. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, let's go on to a different bit of federalism, which is, it turns out the British Columbia office of CSIS has let a variety of behavior or encouraged or condoned a variety of behavior that has been very, very harmful to the people working, particularly women who have been working there, sexual assault, sexual harassment, that I don't know if the CSIS office downtown was aware of what was going on, on the West Coast or didn't do anything about it or whether whether it was part of a larger CSIS culture. Uh, But since we spent the past several years talking about sexual misconduct in the military, that may have eclipsed uh, our attention towards similar dynamics in in other parts of government, particularly the other parts of the security enterprise. Exactly.
1: I mean, my, my take on this is that when you think about like CSIS and obviously there is a culture that is associated with working in intelligence services, very much like we have a culture that's associated with defense and with the military. And so the tropes of that culture often revolve around aspects of power, of influence. And it's not surprising to see that some of those things also end up being translated into toxic workplace behaviors. I mean, I think one of the things that was shocking is that this is one of the statistics is that one woman was raped nine times in surveillance vehicles. Like, I don't understand how that happens uh, that to me was just shocking to learn, I think, as somebody who wants to believe that you can work in for the public in the security and defense establishment and be safe and be in a job environment where you're literally, you're, you know, you don't feel as though you're working with people that will aggress and harm you. Um, given what we've seen about the depth of the challenges that were uncovered in the military with the Arbor report and with the various following things in the military justice system, it's probably wise to be calling for that level of inquiry into toxic workplaces as well in some of these other establishments in Canada, because If it's going on in one office, it would be not a surprise to find out it was going on other places and other forms, maybe not as violent or severe, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: the toxicity probably exists in other CSIS offices.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges is... That everything that CESIS does is, is just not as investigated by journalists, by outsiders as as the military. The military is much more visible. And so it very much might, might be the tip of the iceberg that the military has now been forced by multiple eras of of McClain's and other reporting. Uh, and then Mercedes Stevenson in 2021 and then her team at Global. You know, the media has been pushing this, but the media doesn't have quite the same access to CSIS as it does the military the public does not have as much access to CSIS as it does the military one of the reasons it would
1: surprise me if it has some of the same aspects that we uncovered like culture of secrecy this culture of influence and control this culture of people feel as though their future career would be leveraged because it's a closed culture the same exact thing like these you know it is not a large community if anything we should be learning the lessons now from defense. And mm-hmm. thinking about how we can implement them and use them in ways that would help to speed this process along and, and understanding what's going on in, in CSIS. But it's definitely unfortunate. And of course, it's it's shocking, I think, in terms of this idea of federalism is in as well, that we like to think the center in Ottawa has a very good idea about what's going on in the rest of Canada. Yeah. But the reality is that there is this geographic distance and you can hide lots of things when you're far away.
0: It's that, and it's also we don't have a really a system designed for oversight, that we have created new institutions to oversee the intelligence apparatus, yeah. uh, but they're contested, right? So NizyCop was the committee that of parliamentarians who are supposed to report to the prime minister, but then also the public. And that's been subverted by the conservatives when they were attacking the the lab in Manitoba, amongst other things. There is Nazira, but again, their their focus is less on personnel issues and more on the intelligence. You know, are they are we surveilling the wrong people? Are we doing things, you know, are we doing things illegally? As opposed to making sure the military oper- the intelligence services operate as the way they should. This should be the job of Parliament, but as uh Gassay and I and Dave Ars document in both our book and our article, and now what well, came out this week at an online site called Strategy Bridge. We wrote a, a short piece for that documenting how we don't really have much in the way of oversight by the Canadian Parliament on the military, and that extends to other places. They've, they've developed some substitutes, but they're the same incentive structures there where there's not really incentive by parliamentarians to engage in critical oversight over... Intelligence services, just like there's not incentives to do that over defense. So a lot of the stuff that we found applies more broadly, although in some ways the department has had paid paid more attention to the intelligence than than to the military. But it's also the case we need to think more about how our civil service, how our public service attitudes are, because the project that's taken me to Germany and elsewhere that I mentioned earlier is about what do you think your job is as as somebody in government in other countries? People in the ministry or department of events think their job is to oversee the military, not to support it. And if you're supporting the military, then maybe you're not as vigorous about making sure that it's various bad behavior of, it, of its members is checked. I don't know about how Ceases operates, the civil servants of the Ceases operate, but if they don't think their job is to oversee themselves. I'm not sure who's doing that. And it's not being done. then that helps to create a, a sense of Impunity. So we go back to that that person that experienced nine different rapes from the same person. That speaks to impunity, right? That this office had a number of individuals there that thought they that thought, and reasonably so, that they could get away with this behavior. And that's really the challenge, the fundamental argument that we have in the book and in the next book, is that you need to have people to expect oversight and to have expect consequences if the overseers actually find out bad stuff. Not because not just to, to punish people who are doing bad things, but so that people anticipate that they'll get caught and get punished, that their careers will hang on doing the right thing. And so we want to get well, in the I mind of the people.
1: One of the insights I learned um, hanging around uh, in these um, Central and Eastern European countries uh, is that there is sometimes a bit the reverse pressure in the sense that sometimes they promote the guy before they ax him. And so sometimes... Every once in a while, you're continuing to promote people that you know are problematic or incapable because eventually you figure that there's going to be a way that you're going to out them in a way that's dramatic. And this is kind of like it harkens very much to the Soviet era and almost the the fenestration, right? That throwing the people out of the windows. And so this was actually, again, this came up in interviews when I was talking about these centers of excellence, because we were talking about how to staff these centers and who ends up at these centers, not trying to (laughs) imply that any of these people are incompetent. But there were some people who were concerned, right, that this type of position is used a little bit as kind of like a benefit for people that may not be right fits other places will say right and I thought that was a little bit interesting from the Steve and company perspective because it speaks a little bit about how leadership can sometimes be used as a way to kind of putting somebody in a leader somewhere where they think will be problematic we'll say
0: they're a dummy ground
1: exactly right and again i think this dovetails a little bit with the idea that like there's this idea with is particularly with nato uh, that like people check these career boxes and one of them has to be going to or doing xyz type things right and there's this kind of internal military list of things and experiences that you do when you build a career and i think that's also kind of a bit of a fascinating aspect to consider that I learned. So for example, there could be an interesting study about these language schools in Canada that were held in the 1990s to train all of these people today that are now generals in Central and Eastern Europe. And so they learned their English in Canada, most of these people, 1996, 97, 98, were when these courses were held. And so there would have been like 30 or 40, you know, at that time you know kind of low level but rising kind of folks in the military and so talking to these people and meeting these people now you know 30 and 40 years later down the road was simply fascinating and it really made me think about how one of Canada's contributions to the alliance is really something we don't talk about which is really that language aspect this is one of the things that Canada has kind of contributed under radar for a number
0: of years I not know that well, we're going to learn a lot from each other and hopefully we'll learn a lot from the year ahead, which is going to happen again, December 7th. I this uh, podcast is dropping the day before, so hopefully there'll be some listeners who will be inspired to join us there. We have four sets of panels. One will be on avoiding war with China. Not that we should ignore China's aggressions, but we need to figure out how to avoid war with them because if we think war is inevitable it becomes inevitable. And this would be a, a, a traumatic war. So that's one panel. A second panel is on the Balkans. We're checking in because we think that things are uh, heating up there and not as many people are paying attention as they should be. We spent a fair amount of effort in this country and in, in NATO in the early 2000s, peacekeeping and also peace enforcing in, in the Balkans. A third is about evacuations, which is we're looking at some of the evacuations of the past to learn about the evacuation of the future. We thought this might be a, a relevant issue for the future, but it turns out we are now engaged in doing some evacuations out of the Middle East, thanks to the Israeli-Gaza conflict. And the fourth panel is, see, whenever we have four, a list of four, the fourth one is always hard to remember. But it is the 2024 election, which is that election in the United States is going to generate unpleasantness in the United States. And the question is whether it spills over to us. Not that The panel is not about Trump or not Trump. It's about Trump running for office and Republicans trying to compete with him to be the best white supremacist, essentially, and what that means for encouraging extremism in the United States and then encouraging extremism here. And so we are gonna have in our next segment an interview with one of my colleagues, Lama Murad, who's studied forced migration and she's gonna be moderating the panel on the evacuations. Sorry you can't be here for it. You've been at a Previous Year Heads. So we always appreciate your insights, Anessa. But I think you've traveled enough for, for for a while, so I think you deserve a break. Uh, I do appreciate it coming on to the podcast. I really am looking forward to the stuff coming out of your research. I think it's really important. And I think the folks in government to listen to what you have to say about how these things have played out elsewhere.
1: And for our listeners that are Francophone, I'd like to know uh, I have forthcoming publication um, in Politique Americaine, but it's an English language article on current and future challenges to Canada US defense cooperation, North America, the transatlantic, and beyond. So. Uh, I've also been thinking about what's coming up ahead um, and that special issue of Politik American is called Asymmetry and Interdependence Canada-U.S. Relations. So folks that would be interested are invited to read. Thanks a lot, Steve. You have a great day.
0: Very cool and uh, enjoy the holidays and, and very early Happy New Year.
1: To you as well.
0: So, today we have Lama Murad, one of my colleagues at Carleton. It's been long overdue for her to come to the Battle Rhythm. She's doing a lot of interesting work. And she is the moderator for one of our panels for the year ahead event on December 7th in Ottawa. Lama, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your your background, your research, that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you said, I'm I'm one of your colleagues, I'm at the Norman Patterson School here at Carleton. Uh, my research is is really at the intersection of the questions related to forced migration, asylum, local governance, and the politics of the middle East more broadly so you know i I look at very happy things most of the time <laughs> and um, i've 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 done work on questions of global governance of displacement and you know politics around the category of the refugee at the global level, but my you know, core research agenda is really around sort of the micro politics at the local level
0: of refugee governance
2: and uh, politics. I should say I, I focus primarily in that work on on Lebanon.
0: And that is because?
2: Uh, for a lot of reasons, I think, uh, well, in when I was, you know, developing my research uh, as a doctoral student, it was just as the Syrian refugee crisis was beginning to, to take shape. Particularly in the Middle East, you know, before it it got on European radars, it was, you know, front and center in the Middle East. And Lebanon very quickly became the largest host per capita of refugees in the world. It had long been a host of refugees, obviously, of of Palestinian refugees in particular. But, you know, by 2014, Lebanon was hosting over a million refugees in relation to four million citizen residents. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of Empirical and theoretical motivation to look at the politics of refugees in Lebanon from a sort of more uh, straightforward positionality question as well. I was able to do this work and motivated to do this work in particular because I'm Lebanese myself. I'm uh, my parents came here as refugees and I'm interested in these questions for both kind of political and moral reasons. And I'm able to do that work because I, you know, I speak Arabic, I speak French, I speak English, and I'm able to do the kind of granular fieldwork that this entailed in Lebanon.
0: Excellent. Well, for those in the audience who don't know, the year ahead is an event where we spend a, a fair amount of time in the early part of the year trying to figure out what's going to be on the horizon. That is, what is going to happen in the next year? And so we try to have a, a variety of panels addressing some of the issues that we think will be important. And we consult with our partners in government and other folks to figure out what do we think is happening soon and so our four topics for this year are the balkans we thought they were simmering and, and might are worthy of renewed attention we have a panel on avoiding war in china with china because we've been hearing the war drums being beaten and the, the worst thing the worst way to avoid war is the thing is inevitable if you think war is inevitable it becomes inevitable. so we're trying to address that conversation third topic is 2024 very easy to predict that there will be an American election in 2024 uh, a year out. And we thought that the the competitive process, particularly with uh, Trump versus other folks in this party, might lead to some, what we call in the business, ethnic outbidding and thus incitement of violence, which might spill over to our side of the border. And then we thought in the aftermath of Afghanistan and and I think think then there was Sudan, we thought, have we learned any lessons about evacuations? We weren't guessing there would be an evacuation crisis in 2024. We just thought this was something that was a recurrent phenomena and that we should learn more about how to do it, how not to do it, given that with climate change, with uh, various conflicts in the world, that it was likely that we'd have to be evacuating people from someplace soon. And so we decided long before the latest bout of violence in the Middle East to do this. And then Gaza happened. And now we see some evacuations proceeding But even if it wasn't Gaza, it would be someplace else. And so we thought we'd bring together a bunch of people who have studied evacuations to learn what works, what doesn't work, and so we asked Alama to be the moderator of this panel because she is an expert on forced migration and evacuations are part of the forced migration process. So when you were asked to do this and you were foolish enough to say yes to moderate this panel, uh, what were your first thoughts about what are the things that we have been learning, things that we haven't been learning, things that have gone well, things that have gone poor?
2: Yeah, Steve, thank you for, for such a great question and for basically articulating a bit why you asked me to do this to begin with. <laughs> because truthfully, when you first asked me, I said, well, I don't really work on evacuations, Steve. I don't even know what I would say to that. I think that was my first response to you. And I, of course, you know, evacuations often happen in the context of broader forced displacement dynamics. We can think of, of course, humanitarian evacuations in particular as being forms of evacuations that often overlap with other forms of forced displacement. But I was, you know, I was really thinking about evacuation in a very narrow sense of, you know, how does Canada get its staff out of Sudan in the immediate aftermath of... And I realized that that was also showing, you know, after I thought about it for a few minutes and before I responded to your email, I said, well, isn't that kind of a problem that that's what I'm thinking about when I think of the term evacuations. And immediately I started thinking about how, well, first, you know, truthfully, I realized that, well, wait a second, I've, I've been evacuated. You know, I've been a part of an evacuation effort by the Canadian government. I was uh, in the south of Lebanon in 2006 and my family was evacuated. We were there visiting. We often do in the summers. And and I realized that from an experiential standpoint, I had been, you know, subject to this policy or this effort. And so that was the first thing I thought of. And I started thinking about why it was that I was qu- so quickly thought about the sort of one logistical questions, which is I thought, you know, the first thing I thought of, I'm not really an expert on this. I don't really work on defense, you know, planning and logistics around how do we do it, quote unquote, effectively. But then also why I was thinking very, very narrowly about who gets evacuated. And I, it made me think about the assumptions about who gets prioritized in the context of evacuations, who are the people that we think about as sort of the immediate not necessarily subject, but the immediate, yeah, the immediate, you know, people we think about that are going to get the full force and full might of the state behind them to get them out, right? And who doesn't? And what are the sort of the challenges that that brings about? So for me, as I sort of think about moderating this conversation between Uh, Stephanie Carvin, one of our colleagues, and Nassim Al-Amin at the University of Toronto, I'm also conscious of the fact that they do very different kinds of work, and they'll be coming at this from different angles. And thinking about, you know, how do we think about the rights, obligations, and responsibilities that states have in relation to protecting their nationals abroad, and to providing safety for their nationals abroad, but also how we need to contend with the fact that our quote-unquote nationals abroad are looking more and more diverse. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so much of this past year in Canadian foreign policy, and maybe, you know, this open, this might open up things that I'm, I'm not at all an expert on, but, you know, we've been contending with the fact that Canada doesn't fully seem to understand the implications of this in a country that has diasporas, and that's also, I think, the case when it comes to thinking about evacuations. I hope we'll hear from Nisreen. I know that she was, I don't believe that she was evacuated. And I think we can talk about that. But I believe she was in Sudan when the violence broke out. And I think mm-hmm. she she had to find her own way out, which most Canadian nationals that were not you know, staff of the Canadian government had to do in in Sudan. They were not evacuated. That's my understanding, at least, and Mm -hmm. so, the majority of people who are dual nationals. And, you know, how do we contend with the fact that these people also have ties to the place that they're often evacuating from, and that they may be leaving behind family members, they may have, you know, strong reasons to also not leave on the first sign of violence. And that's, I think, something that's come up in the most recent escalation of violence in the Middle East, because, you know, the Canadian government has come out, pretty strongly to say, for example, to Lebanese nationals that they should not expect to be evacuated and that they should leave as soon as possible and that they should make their own way home. But that presumes that, you know, it, it sort of has a, a bit of a, of an ideal type, right, of what the Canadian national is. Right. It's someone who is not tied to their other national state in in profound ways and, you know, doesn't contend with all kinds of reasons why they may want to stay. And perhaps, you know, that calculus is a lot more complicated when you have ties to that state. So that's a lot, I realize. But those are some of my thoughts around this question of evacuation, its relationship to forced migration, but also, I think, profoundly, its relationship to notions of citizenship, Mm-hmm. And how we conceive of you know who is the Canadian national?
0: yeah, that's that's a uh, really interesting because I've been assuming for quite some time that Canada would would be expecting the evacuees to be people who have, if not dual citizenship, the equivalent that they have ties to both Canada and wherever they're being evacuated from because we've seen other cases where you know the numbers are not just you know a hundred staffers, it's thousands of people who are there for a reason. And mm-hmm. Lebanon, Lebanon was one of the cases I was thinking of uh, in that category. Other countries, I mean, Canada's had significant
2: diaspora mm-hmm.
0: communities for, well, essentially 50 years, I guess, maybe a little longer than that. And so the, the evacuations in the past 20 years, they haven't, you know, there's been multiple situations where there have been people who have ties to the place, and ties to Canada. And, and the government comes under a lot of pressure because... The government's is responsible for citizens' safety, whether they're here or they're in some foreign land that, and they want to come, they want to escape some sort of emergency. You know, the government came under a lot of criticism for not getting enough people out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So it's a tricky situation because, you know, these people are dangerous spots, so it makes it hard to do. They often don't listen to the warnings to get out before things blow up. Uh, and so the question <laughs> is how, how much responsibility does the government have if people don't listen to, the, to that? It's like you know the classic story of the people who are you know in, in Canada or in the United States, you know they're warned about it in a hurricane or whatever, and, and they don't move because they you know they're like I don't need to evacuate. The last time I did evacuate, I was fine. And so the question then becomes how responsible government is. But the reality is at the end of the day, government is responsible for people who are citizens. Period. Whether they, mm-hmm. whether they make decisions that we understand or not, that the responsibility does not end when Canada makes an announcement, oh, this place is bad, stay away. And often these situations are surprising. So, you know, to use the Gaza example, for example, for a second, there, you know, we know there's been ongoing conflict, but Israelis were certainly surprised at how bad, how, how much conflict there is right now. And so people who are not in intelligence circles could say, well, you know, there's always rockets being thrown over, there's always gonna be some tension. But people have been managed to get by and through this because it isn't at the level of war. And then they find out, oh, well, this time is different.
2: Yeah, no. And I, and I hear you. I think, I mean, I think it's true that in many cases, this is what I mean, the sort of logistical aspect of this is is also really, really important because, you know, in the Lebanon example, you know, one of the, big challenges. And I think one of the big surprises in that moment was that obviously the war was a lot more of a surprise in that context. It was quite sudden, but also the, the airport was taken out on the second day of the war. Wow. And so, you know, it required a different, you know, a, a set of logistical things to be set in motion that were really, really difficult. And that took quite a bit of time. It was only in, in sort of reviewing some material for this panel that I that I realized that I was actually in one of the last <laughs> boats out of, of Lebanon and we were evacuated to Cyprus. But, you know, there is a difference between evacuations that happen when, when Canada still has access to kind of a basic functioning state, if we can say that. Like in, in Israel, this time around, you know, we were able to fly people out out of Tel Aviv airport because the airport was still functional, because the numbers were also relatively small but you know it's it's of course quite different for for Palestinians in Gaza right and the level the number of players that have to be involved in coordinating evacuations of Canadians out of uh, Gaza right now are very very complex and ultimately their access to even the Rafah crossing is really really limited right and obviously rife with with challenges so there's you know it's not to say that I want to be very careful because I, I don't underestimate at all the the challenge yeah. of getting people out in these really really difficult circumstances. and truthfully, you know i've I've started to get to know people here in Ottawa, and you know some of whom have, have worked on on things related to you know at the government level, truthfully, the incredible amount of work. You know that goes into doing this, and the the real mobilization of effort on the government level that happened both in the case of Sudan and also what's what's happened uh, more recently in in Israel and Gaza. So it's not at all a reflection of I think a lack of of effort or or commitment to trying to do this. But one of the things that was striking to me again in in, in sort of reviewing some material to prepare for this if this panel was that I I looked at the the Senate Standing Committee report on the 2006 evacuation out of Lebanon, because Mm -hmm. as you might know, you know, and and as many listeners may not know, you know, that was a one, I think at the time the largest, and I think maybe remains one of the largest evacuations that Mm -hmm. Canada had to, to undertake. And it was also one that set in motion a number of different kind of reflections, but also not just on evacuations, but also on citizenship policy, which is kind of a whole other conversation. But one of the things that struck me is I looked at, so, you know, they had had this large kind of investigation or, you know, a standing committee report done on this. And out of all of the witnesses that were, you know, at the end of the report, it cites everybody that was basically brought in to to report on information that went into the report. There was not one Lebanese-Canadian you know, not one Lebanese-Canadian that was evacuated, not one Lebanese-Canadian, for instance, like my sister who had who was here while we were all in Lebanon and who was, you know, calling everybody she could call to try to figure out how we could. Because, of course, within the first few days, our phone lines went down, yeah. right? So it didn't matter if the Canadian was trying to get, we didn't have phones, right? So, you know, we didn't have a phone line. And this was this was a huge challenge, right? There are both private practical right implications of this and more broader, I think, political and and normative questions related to it. But you know, the only person who was brought in to give quote unquote firsthand observations was a was a Canadian journalist with no ties to Lebanon, you know, who had happened to be there. And so, you know, to me that's there's something quite telling there, right, about whose voices are being heard in the process of trying to take lessons learned, right? And to think about how do we make this better. Right. Not just more efficient and more effective, which is very, very important, but also, you know, that evacuations moving forward take into account the varied experiences of different Canadians. Mm -hmm. Right. And how they, you know, they go through this. So it's a difficult uh, and I and I can understand how in this sort of heat of the moment when we're trying to get people out and this is not the you know, that's not the time to be centering that. But if we can't do it, even when we step back to do a, a report and to think about, you know, what what have we learned, then I I worry that we're never going to learn those lessons.
0: Well, that's one reason why we're having this panel is so that way we can mm-hmm. have a variety of voices that, you know, we might not hear from. Uh, I'm actually not that surprised that the Senate committee didn't listen to, to people who actually had on the ground experience. I think this is a kind of mistake that gets made often and it's frustrating, but it's sort of normal and it's unfortunately normal that we don't do a good job of really getting to understand the dynamics of these situations the local dynamics of these situations the obstacles people face to leave why why they choose to leave when or when they have to leave Mm -hmm. you know and then what are the challenges they face in the course of having to leave their their home in the middle of a crisis you know how to communicate when the phones go down Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, these these are things that um, I'm hoping that that's the panelists can speak to a little bit. Uh, where we were hoping to get somebody from the Canadian military to participate in the panelists, get their perspective, but that didn't work out. But I think we'll, uh, Stephanie Carvin will, will definitely provide a, a very interesting take on, on the government side of things, on, on the Canadian side of things. And news written, I think, will provide a very good perspective on the evacuated and the communities facing these challenges.
2: Yes, I'm really excited. I think it'll be, um, I'm, I hope it's going to be a great panel.
0: Yeah, I, I think it will be. I think it's going to be a very interesting day. Uh, I really appreciate you chatting with us to give us a preview of what's going to happen. Before we go, can you tell us, you know, what is your current research project?
2: Well, I'm working on on finalizing the book, which, uh, which is called Open Borders, Local Closures, Performative Politics of local refugee response and it's based on my field work on Lebanon that's sort of the big project but there's for better or worse, a number of other projects that I've been working on, and, and and I'm I'm really excited about. I've been doing some work with with a colleague of mine, Stephanie Schwartz, at the LSC on COVID nineteen border closures and relation in relation to and also broader asylum policy. We've been working, you know, we've been able to work with UNHCR on that, which has been really exciting. And I'm hoping that we'll have something sort of a public audience piece on that, uh, hopefully very soon. I'm also working on a project on on municipalities and in Lebanon and their management and, and challenges that they face in the ongoing layers of crises that Lebanon is facing. You know, it's just feels like we just add crisis to crisis to crisis, unfortunately. So kind of looking more at the sort of local governance angle. And in general, I, I sort of want to continue to, to move on both the both the intersections of forced migration and asylum and, and local politics, but also work on agendas on each of those kind of separately. It's It's where my you know, core interests lie.
0: Excellent. I'm not going to ask you any gnarly questions about what's going on in between Israel and Palestine these days, because that would be a three hour podcast that you're not prepared for. Since I didn't tell you, I'd be asking you any questions about that. That would be unkind. Well, so... I did.
2: I did. Uh, and I think you, you know, you you saw the piece. I, I For for one of my takes, at least people can look at a Globe and Mail op-ed that I recently published with also the same colleague with Stephanie Schwartz from the LSC. So if you're interested in the question of how forced displacement factors into all of what's happening right now that's you know that's a distillation of my cake
0: <laughs> that well, won't take us three hours no that's excellent and i thank you for reminding me about that because we will put that in the show notes so that people can hit the, the link from our from the podcast to to find your piece it's an excellent piece i was very happy to see it because we need as much clarification of what's going on here is possible because we got all kinds of voices in this space, including many who are trying not to provide clarity. So I think I think your piece was really terrific. and I'm glad that you you wrote about it giving your expertise in the topic.
2: Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate it and look forward to to continuing this conversation.
0: All right. for those who haven't gotten tickets yet for the year ahead, this podcast is going to drop the day before. That doesn't mean you know, we'll still have a few seats left. So check out the CDCN website and you'll find more information about the Yearhead Conference. In the aftermath of it, we will post much of it online. But if you show up, we'll feed you, if you pay, we'll feed you and you'll have a chance to ask questions and network with people during the breaks. It's really a terrific event that we have every year. Uh, we hope to see you there. Alama, well, thanks again for that. Uh, since I've on, been on Spotify, I haven't seen you too much. So I look forward to hanging with you during the year ahead, and then you can go off on your holidays. Thanks, Steve. Looking forward to it as well. Take care.